Welcome to the one within all to another episode of Interverse Podcast. I'm your host, Chance, and I hope this glorious day or evening finds you in perfect harmony with the way and with all that is. We are joined in this episode by Gregory Ripley, who is an author and a Taoist priest who has recently completed another book called The 100 Remedies of the Tao. So in this conversation, we'll pick Greg's brain about the life-affirming philosophies that he's been sharing in his work throughout the last many years and see what other interesting avenues the esoteric threads might take us down. And thanks for being here, Gregory. Welcome to Interverse. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Chance. So I basically just saw your book in the publisher catalog. It jumped out at me as somebody who's had a very long time interest in at least some parts of Taoism, the I Ching being a particular favorite of mine, really like that as a tool. And so it just seemed like a theme this month for me to be just digging into the ways that we can heal ourselves within and without, including our, our world by more harmonious ways of thinking and being in the world. So 100 Remedies of the Tao was right up my alley. I enjoyed perusing that book, and I'd love for you to introduce yourself and your work for us today. Yeah, sure. Thanks. Um, so Gregory Ripley, of course. And uh, oh, let's see. I've, I've uh, yeah, I've written a couple books on Taoism now and kind of have a background in uh, Asian studies. I did Asian studies in college, um, kind of focused on on China as a concentration of interest and um later on went on to um acupuncture school and uh did that for a while and um yeah just been been involved in this kind of stuff for for a lot of years um whether it's Taoism specifically or you know Chinese medicine or related things tai chi and qigong and all that so um yeah any, any anything else in particular you want to know I'm happy to happy to chat about so well, there's just a lot of things right in there that are interesting and fun <laughs> to talk about. I myself enjoy a, a a decent, I should say, decent Qigong practice. I'm sure everyone's could always be better, but maybe we'll just start with that. How has pursuing these avenues academically led to transformative benefits in your life in terms of behaviors and actions? 
Yeah, um, a lot of ways, I suppose. You know, um, I think my original interest in those things, part of it was, you know, health-related always, um, as it is with a lot of people. Part of it was just um, an enjoyment of doing the practices, you know. Um, especially with uh, Tai Chi, I started while I was in college um, and just, yeah, really enjoyed how it felt to do it, you know, just um, sort of embodying some of that sense of flow and uh, relaxation, um, learning how to work with other people in a kind of uh, less confrontational manner, um, you know, with push hands practice and things like that. Um, and then, yeah, for, for me, um, it, it flowed into the rest of my life too. Like when I was in college, I worked in coffee shops for years and sometimes I find myself, well, often in one shop in particular, we often worked by ourselves. And so every once in a while you'd get slammed, have a line out the door and it was just you, you know, having to deal with it. So you just had to kind of put your head down, take uh, one order at a time and, um, you know, I'd find myself um, moving in ways that were familiar from Tai Chi forms and stuff like that, right? Uh, efficiency of movement and smoothness, um, not trying to rush, but trying to smoothly do things quickly, right? And in a in a mindful, controlled sort of way. Um, and then you could get through your rush and it was almost like it never even happened. You'd be like, oh, okay, there's the end of the line. Um, versus when you get uh, in the weeds and you feel that sense of urgency and stress and you're like starting to freak out, you know. Um, but if you can just take it moment by moment, that's before you know what it's over. So, yeah, that's uh, something worth keeping in mind, especially people like me. I'm a born under the sign of Aries. So impatience is kind of the default for me. And I, I think a lot of us have noticed that the less patient we are the more to her we are the more things we do that sabotage us and actually make things take longer so the smooth you know emphasis on smooth i think that's a very dao type of thing i'm wondering though in your experience with taiji or jigong have you ever had any experiences that kind of bent your notions of the solidity of material reality anything you know <laughs> out there happen um you know, no, nothing, um, nothing too surreal or mind blowing other than, um, you know, a common experience. Sometimes people will even talk about um, Qigong consciousness or something like that, right? Or, or, or like the state of Qigong that they're kind of aiming for when they're practicing. And to me, it often, that kind of feeling, it's often like a feeling of, uh, you know, first a sense of like unified sense of embodiment kind of, you know, like you can have your awareness be in particular places within your body, but then you can have a sense when you sort of feel like your awareness has filled your entire body and you can't really differentiate one place from another. Um, and then you get a sense where you kind of start to lose a sense of where your skin ends and the rest of the world begins, you know? Um, and I suppose it's in Western terms, it's probably something akin to a unity consciousness or something like that. Um, 
those kinds of things, you know, often when I'm in nature, especially um, that kind of uh, a reaction is, is much easier to come by. Um, but nothing like, uh, you know, I'm not sticking my hand through walls or anything like that, but <laughs> not setting newspapers on fire yet with, with just no, your chi. Haven't, haven't, haven't quite built up that uh, friction yet or, or learn those tricks either way. No, it, you wouldn't be allowed to tell us if you did. That's right. That's right. It's, 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 it's a highly guarded secret. Uh, you know, you have to come sit on the mountain for five years and then maybe, maybe, no. <laughs> I, when I first started practicing Qigong, I did a particular movement and I noticed that as I whooshed in one direction, a poster just all of a sudden blew off the wall as if it had been hit by a gust of wind. And I was like, did I do that? It was very strange. And another time I was practicing with a friend who also had a pretty long-term experience with it. And he showed me this thing where, you know, the, like the basic thing of having an energy ball between your hands and then breathing in and feeling it expand and then retracting it and becoming aware of the, the borders and edges of that energy. So he put my hands between his, so his were outside of mine and mine were together and he did the energy ball expansion thing. And my hands on their own moved and expanded outward as if they were on a string that someone else was pulling. And that was pretty trippy. And to me, that was like the first touch of the Qigong state that you're talking about. And then since then, it's sort of become the goal when practicing to not really control the movement of my body, but just intend to follow the form and then let the breath and the expansiveness of and contracting of the breath actually be what pushes the the body along the meridian lines to do the motion. Does that all kind of click? Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense to me. It's almost like you 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 get this feeling of like um, that you're just watching yourself move or something. Almost like it's just happening all by itself, and you're just going, "Oh wow, look, this is going so smoothly! Like, what's happening here?" Um, and yeah, I've had times like that too with, um, you know, with partner practices, right? Like push hands and stuff where if you do the, if you do it correctly, you feel like you didn't do anything. You're like, how did that happen? Like, you know, I was trying so hard before or I was, you know, uh, fine tuning and trying to adjust my movements and stuff. And then when I, you just sort of let go and follow the pattern, then it's like magic happens or something, right? It's like, I, I, you don't even feel like you're touching the person. Um, you know, unlike I'm not knocking people down from across the room, that kind of, uh, stuff. I, I think there's a little hypnotic suggestion going on there with those people, but, um, but yeah, that sense of there's no longer any, um, sort of volition to it or something. It's, it's like, it's spontaneously happening or something. It's like you've just maybe there's a little bit of a spark of a catalyst of intention, and that's about it. And after that, it's like it just happens on its own. So do you think that's in, in our practices, in our individual moments of the repetitious motions? Is that like a microcosm of the idea of Wu Wei? Can we get into Wu Wei as a concept in the, the macro and micro? Yeah, definitely. I think so. It's like... um you know, a lot of times people just want to translate it very uh, 
straightforwardly as non-action. And of course, it's not that you're just sitting there doing nothing, literally. You know, I mean, the, although there are times when the best or most efficient or most effective um, action would be to do nothing. <laughs> so uh, there is that aspect to it, but I think it's also, we can look at it in terms of, um, you know, yeah, like the most efficient or effective action in a situation or, and if we looked at it in the microcosm, it would be like the, I, I don't know what's the best word to use. You know, you could say the best action or the most appropriate action maybe would be a, a good word. Like, so that, you know, the, just like all the planets are spinning in the galaxies and universes, everything's doing its thing, um, you know, seemingly without any problem, any um, volition, any sense of self, any whatever, right? It's all just happening spontaneously or naturally or whatever. And then when we can kind of tap into that, everything goes more smoothly. Like there are less problems, there's less confrontation, or you may have problems, but they don't feel like problems. They don't seem like problems. It's like, this is just what's happening. You deal with it in the moment, you move on to the next moment and do what's most appropriate, you know, moment, moment to moment. You think that's sort of the the artistic or even athletic flow state as well? Yeah, I think it's, it's very similar. If it's not, if it's not the same thing, it's, it's really similar. So it's almost like, I almost think of it like, you know, athletes or dancers or what have you, um, a really skilled craftsperson or, or whatever artist, they, they might tap into that flow state in a particular format, right. Or with a particular set of skills that they've worked on for a lifetime. And it's almost like, um, you know, someone, if, if we think of like a Zen master or, whatever, somebody like that, it's almost like, it's almost like they've achieved a flow state through meditation or something. So it's it's not going to turn them into an NBA star or something like that. But sitting, just sitting and being, it's like they've found flow just in being or something like that. Um, I think there's, yeah, something to that. I think so. I think it's the, the zone that we yeah. all want to be in and then you make a distinction in the book uh and actually i'll just save this let's introduce the book more properly and then we'll sure. we'll get into that so 100 remedies of the Tao. why'd you write it what do you think that people can get out of it well it's uh it's kind of interesting it's a the original text it came from um is from fifth or sixth century somewhere in there um and it's actually a precepts text. Um, and normally we think of precepts as just a set of rules that you follow, right? Um, and this one, I, I always thought it was kind of interesting because of the way it's framed as remedies. It's like the character for remedies or, or, or you could say medicines, or it would be the same character you'd use for like an herbal remedy in Chinese medicine, right? So um, you could say medicines or or something like that. But so each one is like, such and such is a remedy. Um, and I like the way it's framed because it's kind of like, 
you know, we all, we all find ourselves in situations in life where we, we have problems that come up or there's a situation we don't know how to deal with or, or what's the best uh, route to go. And, and this is kind of saying, Hey, you know, this isn't necessarily like some hard and fast rule. It's not a thou shalt do this or not do that sort of thing. It's like doing this is a remedy for your problem or your situation. Or they also kind of frame it in the way um, that there's some Zen texts that do this too, where they talk about diseases of the mind in the sense that, you know, here you have kind of like delusions about life or how things work or whatever and that uh those are kind of like diseases of mind so these are like remedies for those diseases um similar to the idea of you know like the medicine buddha or something like that right the buddha as physician or spiritual physician something like that so um yeah these are remedies uh for situations you might find yourself in and you may not need all of them <laughs> hopefully you don't need all of them but uh Certainly, um, I think most of these are, are things that everybody can relate to, whether they're interested in Taoism specifically or just, you know, pursuing a spiritual life uh, of any sort. I really like the idea of medicine or remedies being basically derived from mind, mind practices or har harmony in your mind. I'm someone who does uh, a very specific type of energy work or therapy that involves helping people see where limiting beliefs are when they came up in their life and then reversing them, bringing free will upon stuff that they maybe thought was their personality or, or just how life is. So mm -hmm. the terminology of remedies def definitely fits for me. Cause I think that that's pretty much the origin of all disease or even Disharmony in life relationally or between yourself and the world comes from having a preconceived notion about who you are or what the world is that is in some way limiting to the flow and expression of life force within and without you, thus eventually leading to some kind of distortion, disease or even injury in the body. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And it's like whether we think of, you know, the immune system or something like that, it's like you know, we, we know what happens when the immune system is, isn't functioning properly or is, you know, hyperactive or what have you. Um, and that, yeah, there's, there's going to be things you have to deal with in life, you know, whether it's physical, mental, emotional, you know, traumas, what have you. But if you are sort of functioning, functional, functioning, there we go, <laughs> functioning optimally, you're going to be in the best position to deal with all those things. Right. And so, um, and like you said, if you have unexplored traumas or, or things that you're holding on to that you don't even, aren't even aware of. Um, yeah. If those things can be released and um, things can just flow in a, in a more effortless manner, all that good stuff, how the, how you're naturally supposed to be functioning then. Yeah. I, I'm someone who's also really interested in language, especially from like a philological level, the type of connections you can potentially make between languages, showing some sort of affinity from one culture to another through concepts that share root phonetics. So I was wondering when you brought up that word remedy, what was the character 
phonetically that you're referring to that meant remedy or medicine? It's it's yow. Okay, that's what I thought. Yeah. Okay. See, that's to me really interesting because yow is one of the names in uh, from a more like Middle East or even Occidental perspective. Yao is an, an ancient name for the supreme being or the deity. Mm. It's oh. the like in Greek, it would be IAO or Iota Alpha Omega, which is I am the Alpha and Omega. So when we're saying that this word in Chinese that meant remedy and medicine, but also like referred to being in harmony with the Tao, the word is Yao. That's a, a really cool either coincidence or interesting connection between East and West. Yeah, for sure. And I, you know, we'd have to break down the character and look at the roots of it. If there's from a, from, you know, the, the visual elements of it, if there's, I don't know if uh, that same connection would be there or as clear, or perhaps clearer. Right. But um, yeah, but from the sound, that's certainly uh interesting i i hadn't ever thought about that but it makes perfect sense yeah that's something that's going to be on my mind throughout this whole conversation the because <laughs> the further i've dug into the esoteric sides of the various mythologies and religions of the world the more it all seems to just come up as like variations of buddhism <laughs> In a sense, and maybe not variations of Buddhism as we know it today, but uh, that some kind of precursor was making its way around the world in a type of almost near universal priest type system. Mm. And you brought up the medicine Buddha. I know there's lots of different Buddhas, but could you tell us a little bit more about this particular version of the deity? Yeah. um, Let's see. Well, what is what is there to say? Um, <laughs> in uh, I I know it best through uh, Tibetan Buddhism. Um, I used to study with Tibetan Buddhist teachers for many years, and uh, so there are medicine Buddha practices. You know, like the in Tibetan Buddhism, you typically have a sadhana. Like um, sometimes people think of yoga sadhanas. Um, it's it's like a Asana is like a, a set of disciplines or practices that are all kind of a, a cohesive practice that you follow, um, like a meditation practice. So in Tibetan Buddhism, you know, typically it's you've got visualization and you've got a mantra, right? And so you would have a practice where you, you know, you would do the refuge at the beginning um, in the Buddha Dharma Sangha and then... Um, uh, raising compassion and you know bodhicitta the thought of enlightenment or compassion for all beings and then you would get into the practice and it would be like a description of what the medicine buddha in this case looks like um all the symbolism of of the figure and that kind of thing and then you would you would visualize and do a mantra and then depending on the level of practice it is um you then might change the visualization to being yourself as that figure right um and then you might dissolve it into emptiness and not be doing anything at, after that point but um yeah so a lot of people the way they practice it can be practiced in in many different ways right these kind of practices you can practice it in a like people do with um 
you know, Omani Pei Mi Hung, they, you know, with prayer wheels and all that kind of stuff, right? You could just be throughout your day repeating a mantra. You could be doing it during formal practice periods. But um, yeah, with the Medicine Buddha, it's like people use it for physical ailments and things, but it's really the idea is like you were saying earlier that, you know, everything at its root is going to have like a spiritual cause or a, or something like that. Right. So if you're, if you can change your mind and even your body energetically or what have you, then that's going to ripple out and kind of take care of these grosser levels of, of reality. Um, so that might be a, a good way to look at it. Yeah. The, the Buddhism thing just still fascinates me. I mean, the concept that we're talking about right now, the medicine Buddha seems to have spread at least as far of, as Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. There's a little known aspect of ancient Greek culture called the Greco Buddhist empire. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Do you know anything about that? It's not something I've been able to learn a whole lot about. Well, I mean a little bit in the sense of, Right. You had Alexander the Greek or Alexander the Great, <laughs> not the Greek. That's Jimmy the Greek. I think I'm thinking of Alexander the Great, uh, you know, made it into that region, right into Afghanistan. And uh, what we might have, you know, at that time was kind of all India, like greater Indian uh, culture and the, the subcontinent, um, Pakistan, Afghanistan, that area. And so I think they called them the Bactrians to that area. Um, So it was like, because Greek became the language of trade and everything in those areas, even after the Greeks left, I think a lot of that culture stayed. And there was this commingling of Greco-Roman culture and stuff with Indian culture. You know, I I think I remember hearing that um, Alexander actually brought what were basically sadhus back with him, you know, to on his way back towards Greece. Of course, he, I guess he never made it right. But, uh, you know, I guess the armies did. Um, and so, yeah, there's even some schools of Greek philosophy that have a definite Buddhist or and or Hindu or kind of like pre-Buddhist, pre-Hindu kind of um, influence in there. Um, but and then, you know, some of that stuff gets really hard to follow sometimes because unless you can see directly where somebody translated specific terms or ideas, um, then it's hard to say, oh, this this seems like it's come straight from here. But if, there, if there's kind of like a missing link, right, sometimes you can't. It seems like a, a common sense to look at them and say, oh, I, I really feel like I see this influence in there. But. And sometimes you can see those traces and sometimes you can't, but it's really interesting. I think there was a lot of, a lot more cross fertilization of ideas like that in the ancient world than we, than we uh, generally give, uh, give them credit for these days. And you you focus mostly on the Taoist history or Taoist spiritual texts, right? Yeah. And that's kind of, I don't want to say a theological but it's more about practices and and mindfulness and being in the moment than about the worship of specific deities. Is that right? 
Yes and no. Uh, I, I would say it's very similar. I think for because people know Buddhism in the West much more than they know Taoism. Um, I think thinking of it in terms similar to Tibetan Buddhism is helpful in that. You know, if you if you don't know anything about Tibetan Buddhism, you look at it from the outside and you could be like, oh, look, it's like this big pantheon of gods and all these, you know, different deities and stuff. And it's kind of like on one level, that's true. And on another level, you know, there are no deities in in Buddhism, um, you know, if you're looking at it from a absolute perspective. And, and Taoism is kind of similar um, it's also kind of similar to, you know, Hindu ideas of like that there's an unmanifest ultimate reality that you may name or not name, and then everything else emanates from that. So in Taoism, it would be like everything emanates from the Tao. And whether you think of the gods as having some sort of absolute being or not would be up to your kind of personal interpretation. Um, Although I will say that, um, you know, there's the Buddhist school of philosophy, the Madhyamaka, that's like the middle way philosophy, right? Where you have like the ultimate and relative truths or ultimate and relative reality. And so that those ideas pretty much permeated with Taoism. Um, so philosophically, Taoism is very similar to that. So it's kind of like on an ultimate level, there's, there's only the Tao, there's only the universe. Right. Um, and, but on a relative level, we, we have our own experiences. Um, we may experience other beings, um, whether it's other people, animals, gods, ghosts, spirits of different kinds, whatever. Um, and so we might say that they have a relative, uh, being or a relative reality to them, but maybe not an ultimate reality to them. The doctrine of emanations, that's one of those keys that seems to permeate through lots and lots of esoteric systems, East and West, whether it's Kabbalah or Taoism or Hinduism, there's this unnameable, ineffable absolute. And then the different layers of mind that comprise the various levels of complexity of reality emanate from that sort of stillness where the nothing and something paradoxically collapse into a type of pleuromic void. <laughs> it's like flowery language. I know, but it's the best way to describe it. So I'm, uh, I'm wondering, is there any other name that the ancients might've called Taoism before it started being called Taoism or is there a, a more correct pronunciation to the Chinese people? Uh, well, in, in current Mandarin, it's definitely Tao, but, um, you know, it's, it's interesting to look at the early roots. Um, you have some scholars who are like, until you had organized Taoism that we know of, you know, with the, like the celestial masters in, um, you know, like 132 AD or whatever year it was, um, that's when Taoism starts, you know, even though they take the Tao Te Ching and Lao Tzu and everything, it's their founder, um, much earlier. Right. But then you have scholars who can look at these old texts and say, well, no, you have all these 
stories of masters and disciples and lineages and stuff before that. And, you know, they may not have called themselves Taoists before, you know, 200 BC or something like that. But you can obviously see that it's the early roots of the people and the groups and the teachings of people who then later called themselves Taoists. So, um, you know, they used to say things like, well, sometimes they combine terms, right, and say like uh, Tian Dao, the Dao of Heaven, or something like that, right, and and not just Dao by itself. And then even, you know, if you read Confucian texts or or um, you know, there's the time period they call like the Hundred Schools or something like that, where you had legalists and naturalists and all these different people, um, and they were all talking about their various Dao's, their various ways. And then I think you had the people who took that to a deeper level of like, this is the end all that we don't really have a name for, but we're going to throw that name on it because it makes the most sense or it's a good placeholder. And, you know, that's our, uh, that's our orientation. And so we're going to call ourselves Taoists because we're trying to be in accord with you know, not just a way that we've come up with or his way, your way, but the way, you know, like the way of the universe. So, um, yeah, I, I guess I'd leave it there. <laughs> <laughs> the further back we go, the more murky it gets. But yeah, I'm wondering, sure. if, let's talk a little bit about you brought up Tian, which is the heavenly father, essentially. Right. That's the whole heavens, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Like the, it, the whole sky. Yeah, in modern usage, it's it's like yeah, the sky or the heavens. Um, in in the same way that you know, we might say heaven, and mean it in a like a particular way, like in a Christian way or a, a Muslim way or something like that. Or we can talk about the heavens, you know, when we're we're talking about the night sky, right? So there's those connections between, um you know, what we, what we actually see and experience in the natural world. And then, and then our ideas of what uh, an afterlife or a, a pre-life uh, might, might be, or might have been, but yeah, in, in modern usage, it's, it has to do with uh, just the sky or like the weather, things like that. Um, but yeah, I think at a certain point it was a little bit more anthropomorphized and then it became more of a, a, a non-anthropomorphic kind of idea of, of the heavens. Um, and I think one of the dynasties, um, one of the early dynasties had that more uh, personified idea of it, like a heavenly father um, or like Tian Di is, is uh, often like uh, the term they would have used back then. Yeah. That's another big connection between East and West, actually, that they're mm -hmm. calling the heavenly father, Tian Di, because D means God in like the more Latinized and even Greek side of things. Yeah. Interestinger still to me is how the precursors to the Romans, the ancient Etruscans who populated yeah. Italy, have a lot of connection to Phoenicians and seafarers who had trade routes that possibly, who knows, maybe even made it all the way over to China. Their top God, sort of the equivalent of the Roman Jupiter or the Greek Zeus was called Inia or Teen, which is like phonetically the same as the Chinese sky father. Yeah. 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 Really similar. It's yeah. I, and I, 
you wonder about all these things like the Silk Road and and all those kinds of things. It's like, you know, we we only know them as far back as we can trace, uh, you know, with texts and archaeological evidence and all these sorts of things. And you know that at a certain point, um, there's no record just because everything was wood or everything has, you know, rotted away is no longer there. So occasionally, you know, we find these perfectly preserved things in bogs and, and stuff like that. And we go, oh, wow, look, this is so much older than we thought it was. Um, and it, it feels like we're constantly kind of pushing those boundaries backwards, right? Um, and and the more we uh, do... I think underestimating our ancestors has oh, yeah, been for sure. a constant thing about historians and and all that. Yeah, like, oh, we're modern and different. <laughs> and it's like, well, <laughs> actually, you know, every day it looks more and more like people 2,000 years ago were pretty much like us. <laughs> Yeah, maybe cleverer in a lot of yeah. ways because working with less conveniences, which in a lot of ways have made us kind of weaker. Yeah. I wanted to, okay, can we talk a little bit about the the role of the stars, the three luminaries in Taoism? Yeah, sure. So um, usually the three luminaries refers to like the sun, moon, and then the stars, just sort of generally. Um, and it also can be symbolic of like, the two eyes, the sun and moon can correspond to the two eyes. Um, and one of the things I've always liked a lot about Taoism is the whole microcosm, macrocosm kind of idea. And it, you know, I, I don't always like to draw too many uh, inferences and things, but um, with, you know, it seems like more and more with, you know, fractal kind of ideas and modern physics and all these sorts of things that we we see more and more um, patterns, you know, that repeat themselves at different levels and stuff. And and so Taoism is kind of just full of that, right? So, um, yeah, that's that's something that's always kind of uh, made me feel at home with it. So that's how my experience of reality has been. I just like to say everything is everything. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that pretty much sums it up. But another connection, too, is you, you mentioned the sun and moon relating to the left and right eye. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe I've got it back to front, which is which. But that is also yeah. <laughs> a concept in Egyptian mythology as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I and I'm sure uh, I'm sure in um, yogic and Buddhist, Buddhist traditions, it's uh, very similar to. Yeah. And so there was a lot of um, cross fertilization with Buddhism um, in, in Taoism, too much earlier on than than a lot of people think um and so sometimes it was just in formats um things like having a three treasures right and in buddhism they usually talk about three jewels right of buddha dharma and sangha and so on a superficial level Taoism was kind of like, hey, you know, we're kind of in competition with this new thing that's come along here. What's what's this? And so they they sort of followed some of the outer forms um, and, you know, coming up with, you know, a similar idea of like taking refuge in, in three treasures. Um, and of course, in the case of Taoism, it would be the Tao um, and the Jing or the scriptures um, and then the teachers. And, and so you have a similar outer form, but then they kind of kept all the metaphysics and all the 
language and all the the roots that were already there. Um, and so sometimes, you know, scholars, of course, will argue about, you know, what influence came from where and who influenced who. And but there was a lot of back and forth in uh, in uh, medieval China uh, with all of that stuff. So for the better, I'd say probably for both both sides. <laughs> so I'm particularly curious about the mention you make in the book of the stars of Ursa Major, the Big Dipper, being mm-hmm. envisioned as star lords each of the stars being a star lord and i i find that fascinating to me one of the most interesting elements of our world is the way that the heavens revolve but there's that one point that seems to stay still that it all moves around the north and inferring what the ancients might have been alluding to the, like when the ancients might have been alluding to that is always fascinating to me because it seems like if you were going to represent the Tao as anything, it would probably be that pole star because it's the one thing that doesn't move and everything seems to emanate and revolve around it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And there's even, um, there's an allusion to that um, in, uh, from Confucius even as well. Um, Oh, I don't know if I can look it up quickly, but uh, basically it's like the, the ideal, of course, Confucian's, and in that time period, they were all uh, trying to advise rulers, right? And so that was the model they were always looking at. And so the idea was that if the ruler is virtuous and still and is kind of like um, embodying that principle that the entire world is revolving around them, right? Um and uh similar to the the sky revolving around the north star yeah so it's like that if you wanted to have a correspondence between inner and outer it would be like yeah if you're finding that still point within yourself would be like akin to that that north star yeah and what what about the ursa major stars as star lords what exactly do you make of that well the they use that um I mean, that's used in ritual and things, but it's it's isn't there like a dance of moving around the the positions of each of the seven stars of Versa Major or something along those lines? Yeah, there 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 definitely is. There's a lot of different um, versions of of those sorts of things. And, you know, Taoist ritual is really complicated and is not really well uh, sort of disseminated, let's say, or translated or. Or what have you in the West? It's like there are definitely some people who know something about Taoist ritual, but um, I think very few people so far have been really immersed in it in a deep way. Um, for example, one of my teachers is actually in China right now, going through um, in Chuanzhen Taoism, um, which is usually considered more of a monastic tradition, um, certainly in its modern version. Um, they do a a um they do a different levels of precepts right and and a big formal ceremony where a large group of people are doing the precepts together but they spend like a month doing it right so they go they do all these rituals all these teachings all these practices on and on and on and on and and so one of my teachers who's doing that now is like i think one of the first westerners to ever do that um and so 
a lot of the esoteric side of Taoism or the ritual aspects are just really kind of still unknown in the West. I mean, a lot of people um, piece things together from books and things, um, or they've, they've learned one part of something and kind of extrapolate it into other areas. And it's like a little bit different than being fully immersed in it and having it taught to you step by step by step. And so, I mean, what, what I know about Taoist ritual is like a drop in the bucket compared to, <laughs> compared to uh, my teachers. But um, yeah, there's, there's different practices where you would yeah move amongst the stars of the dipper, but then there are all kinds of other ones too, where you, you do all kinds of different patterns. Um, and the dipper stars are also related to um, uh, astrology in China. And, and so the idea of the star Lords is, that the sign you were born under, you know, like you're the rat, uh, in my case, something like that, correspond to the different stars of the Dipper. So the idea is that one of those stars has a greater influence on your life or, or the circumstances and uh, placement and things of your birth. Um, and so there are, um, you know, scriptures like the Beidou Jing, the, the Northern Dipper, scripture that focus on the stars of the dipper and the and the star lords and um you know uh doing practices related to that yeah so i'm a snake up in here (laughs) (laughs) probably why i wound up as like a spiritual seeker podcast researcher kind of fits yeah there you go another man there's a lot of there's a lot of cool stuff in what we just opened up like chinese astrology and the the huge mystery that's still remaining about taoist ritual but back to the seven stars of the dipper there was something you mentioned about connecting with the dipper stars on your birthday can you Mm -hmm. talk about that at least maybe conceptually or as a practice that somebody can do why it was recommended or prescribed? Yeah, I, well, it's, yeah, I would say both. I mean, it's certainly, um, you know, in a monastery or in a temple, um, usually they would do a Beidou Jing on certain days of the month, but um, also you could certainly do it on your birthday. And I think the idea I was getting at there was just that like on your birthday is when the conditions are, similar to when you were born and so you're maybe have a little closer connection to your your star uh on that day um and that you might yeah give a little extra emphasis towards that um but in practice when you when you do um dipper practices your you know your your orientation is towards all of the stars um of course but the yeah the one in particular that uh oversaw your birth might uh have a little closer relationship there. So we're talking about the seven stars of the Dipper, but there was another thing, a snippet that I caught out of the book referring to five notes and five colors. And Hmm. I thought that was interesting as opposed to a more Western perception of there being seven. I know there's like five elements in Chinese medicine. So they're probably referring to that, but can you talk a little bit about the system of five, maybe in comparison to seven or what's special about five or why that was a revered number of the wholeness or the completeness? 
Yeah, so it, it does go along with the, the five elements or five phases theory in Chinese medicine. Um, it's something that's kind of, um, you know, pan Chinese culture, um, you know, even beyond Taoism or, or predating Taoism as it's sort of formally structured. But it, it yeah, it permeates everything. So it's it's in medicine, it's in astrology, it's in uh, the five flavors, uh, the directions, you know, you have four directions in the center. Um, yeah, all, all that stuff relates. And, and, and on one level, it's like in like any other system um, where you have sort of sacred numbers, um, sometimes it might feel like things are just put in those groupings because they, they've decided we like these numbers and so we're going to count things according to them, right? So like the Bagua, you have eight, right? So sometimes you'll see things and it's like, oh, these correspond to the Bagua because there's eight of them. And it's like, well, there may or may not be much of a a, a connection there, especially if it's something modern, um, like in martial arts or something like that, right? Sometimes it's that they were wanting to draw a connection between the two. So they just would call something eight or Bagua or something like that because there was eight aspects to it. But um, yeah, in, in, in terms of five, it's definitely relates to that whole system of correspondences. Although they're probably aware that maybe there's more than five colors. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Who knows though? There's there allegedly, or I say allegedly, but there's some schools of thought that, if we don't have a concept of something, we don't really see it. Yeah. In particular, when you look at, say, the works of Homer, like the Iliad, the sea is referred to as wine dark. And in yeah, fact, there's there's like a very interestingly conspicuous absence of descriptions that refer to things in what we would consider blue mm -hmm. as if that was like not understood and things like the sea in the sky were talked more about like violet or green rather than blue. So who knows? They even say that about the, the ancient uh, native Americans not being able to perceive the ships of Europeans on the horizon because they didn't have a concept of that. It's yeah, one of those things we can't was, know. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, yeah, it, it is interesting that it's like, you know, with colors, it's like, okay, if you only have five crayons and you, you just grew up with five crayons or something, would would all of those variations and shades in between really make any sense to you? You know, or what, if you just saw them and didn't, they didn't have names, you'd be like, oh, what is this? Like, or, or would you just lump them into those five categories and, and call it a day and just say, oh, this is a little bit lighter red this is a little bit darker red this is oh this is light green and yeah one of my yeah, most but, memorable Tao type experiences before i even had that type of language like young in life i had a momentary epiphany where and it was like one of the first times i felt connected to nature i was looking out at the at the world and realized all this time i've been just thinking yeah, all that grass, all those trees, it's just green. But in that moment, I had like a heightened consciousness and I could see the variations of all the different shades of green and the minutia of that. And I realized, oh, this is a huge palette of spectrum and difference. It's not all one thing. So that attention that we can pay, pay to the 
the intricacy, intricacy and the nuance in our world, that's part of what brings us into the what you would consider the moment or the Tao for those type of transcendental mystical things. Yeah, definitely. There's um, I'm trying to think. I think they call it plant blindness um, when people, you know, have grown up in modern society and they're so disconnected from nature that they can't make those distinctions. Right. They they look out and they just see green and they just see trees and they're like in their head, it's all the same. Um and then when you take people out in like forest therapy or something like that and get them to really slow down and focus and start to notice um, those differences, then they're like kind of blown away. Like, oh, my God, I had no idea that that tree looks nothing like that tree. And I used to think it was just all trees. Right. Um, and then you can almost have the opposite where sometimes people get so hung up on classifications and things that then they don't experience the actual thing in front of them, right? They've got all these names and facts and figures and ideas about a thing in their head, and maybe they've never actually touched or interacted with the real thing in the real world, you know? Um, That's like the Baudrillard notion of hyper-reality, where our labels of things and our language filter Mm -hmm. becomes what we see and experience rather than the thing itself. And in many ways, it's removing those layers of assumption that is necessary for us to fully immerse and experience the thing itself in all aspects of life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Having that kind of beginner's mind uh, thing where you can have a a direct experience and a direct perception of something um, without all that intermediation. Yeah, for sure. And we left this out of the introduction. I forgot to mention that you also take people into forest bathing type therapy, right? Can we speak on that? Yeah, sure. Um, Yeah, I, you know, was interested in uh, nature connection stuff for a long time, partly, um, I mean, partly just for a love of being out there myself. But then when I had an acupuncture practice, it kind of hit me more and more that, you know, a lot of people's problems were just living kind of unnatural lifestyles and and, uh, doing things that, yeah, we might say didn't accord with the Tao and didn't flow uh, with life and that sort of thing. Um, And so just getting back into more natural patterns of, you know, sleeping and waking and eating and, you know, not staying up all night with the lights on when, you know, the sun's been down for hours and hours and, and on all these kind of natural rhythms, you know, that, that our, our bodies evolved to, to follow. So, um, that kind of was leading me into that direction. And um, I think in the, gosh, probably about, I'm not sure the time period here, some in that time period around 2010 or so, um, I I got involved with some different uh, modalities like MoveNet. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with that, but um, natural movement is kind of the, the umbrella of some of these uh kind of back to nature exercise modalities and stuff like that. Right. So um, I was kind of getting interested in all these sorts of things. And then um, forest therapy really was kind of starting to bubble up in the Western consciousness a little bit. The modern version of it is out of Japan as Shinrin Yoku or forest bathing. Um, And that 
was just coined in the early 80s by the head of the forestry department over there. Um, so it's kind of a modern idea, but of course it's kind of a universal idea, right, of, of you know, all indigenous cultures around the world. Um, thinking that, you know, if we're out of balance or something's not right, that we need to get back in nature's embrace kind of thing. Um, and so forest therapy is really grew out of that as a, as a way of guiding people into having a deeper experience um, with nature. And uh, the, the idea is there's, you know, some similar things like um, ecotherapy or, um, you know, things where it's like a therapist or a psychologist um, using natural principles um, to help people. This is more as a guide, you're, you're sort of setting up the conditions um, or you're sort of guiding people into the forest. But the saying is that the guide opens the doors, but the forest is the therapist. So you're really trying to lead people into an unmediated experience with nature and that they'll find what they need um in in that interaction with nature itself so are can you talk about any maybe like cases of people that have benefited from that that you've guided through the process well i mean it can be yeah you know it can be um as simple as you know, someone feels really stressed and, and, um, just like they can't relax, they can't settle down. Everything seems like it's going crazy in their life or whatever. And then, you know, you first get into the forest, your head's still spinning, thoughts are still going, you're thinking about everything but where you are, you know. And after an hour or two, sometimes people don't even notice along the way, but by the end of the walk, they're like, Oh, wait, like I'm here. <laughs> I am present. I am here with these, you know, beings and the trees and the the forest or, or the other uh, participants in the walk and what have you. Um, and a lot of times people will have, um, yeah, things things in the forest, something in the interaction between their mind, their emotions, what's going on internally with them and what they're seeing externally, the, the forest will kind of mirror uh, what's going on. And sometimes people aren't even aware of what, what it is. Um, and like you were saying earlier about, you know, releasing um, things from the past and, and things like that, people will see a tree that's injured or something and it reminds them of you know their grandparent that died and like some unresolved issue or so you know they didn't get to say goodbye or like it, it could be any number of things like that and and they'll have this sort of release and this experience of like oh you know it's okay they know you know they knew i loved them um just like this tree you know is here and and I feel a sense of connection with it and and often it's that that kind of unity experience too where people just feel a sense of belonging and connection and and can just relax relax into it you know yeah there's so many things we could say about the <laughs> who who would have thunk it being in nature without 
human artificial stuff causes health promoting <laughs> effects in particular the electricity side of it just being yeah. more grounded allowing the the negative charge to flow out of your body and into the earth as it's meant to mm-hmm. but we're so disconnected often with the rubber soled shoes and yep. hey mm-hmm. if you hugged a tree recently okay. it's not got- it's actually really good for you yeah totally and you've got yeah you've got you know negative ions coming from waterfalls and cascades and things like that and you've got um you know different essential oils and chemicals coming from the trees and the plants themselves um that are are beneficial for your immune system and it it's like on so many different levels um and it's like you know it's just it should be common sense it makes sense from an evolutionary perspective, like this is where we evolved in relationship with all these other things. You know, we didn't evolve in a vacuum. We didn't evolve within four walls in, uh, you know, hermetically sealed uh, buildings and stuff. Um, So it makes sense that if we put ourselves back into those conditions that we're attuned to, that uh, it's going to be good for us. Yeah. But uh, yeah, every, I mean, every day they, they come up with, some new nuance of like, oh, it's also good for this because of this relationship and that and <laughs> on and on. So we'll, we're going to make our, or take our break now and go between the first part and the second part. But Gregory, we let people know how they can get your book, where they might be able to connect with you if, if you're open to that and sure. anything else you want to promote or let them know about as we're finishing out part one. Yeah, for sure. So the book, um, I'll happen to have one here. So I'll hold it up. Oh, there it is. Um, my uh, author copies just came uh, about a week ago. So that was kind of exciting. Um, yeah. So it's, it's uh, put out by Inner Traditions. And um, I'm sure it'll be available everywhere. Certainly you can order it anywhere. It's pre-order right now. It'll be out uh, December 5th. Um, there's also going to be a audiobook on the way at some point. We've already recorded it, but I have no idea um, when they are planning to put it out. So it could be soon, could be in a few months. I don't know, <laughs> but that'll be that'll be fun, too. Um, yeah, but yeah, you can order it. Any any bookstore can order it. Um, you can find it on all the usual channels uh, online. So. Very cool. Any socials you want them to maybe follow? Sure. Um, I, I saw you have at- Instagram. Yeah, at Gregory Ripley um, on Instagram. I think the same on Twitter or whatever it is, X these days. Uh, <laughs> <So> <laughs> threads, confusing. I'm probably over there too. And you, you can find me on Facebook. You can find me uh, all those places. And my website's the same, GregoryRipley.com. So I've tried to keep things pretty uh, straightforward for people. So. Awesome. Well, thanks for being here, man. And I'm looking forward to part two. Got lots more on my mind. Sure. Sounds good. Thanks. All right. Feels good to be back in the saddle for an interverse episode. And I hope you guys enjoyed this one. It's one of the perks of being a podcaster is that publishers will sometimes send you catalogs of what they got coming out. And I saw the title of this book, 100 Remedies of the Tao, and I knew I wanted to give it a uh, a shot. Check it out. Really do enjoy Taoist philosophy in a lot of ways. I wouldn't say I'm a 100% true believer. I think we got to take what works and leave the rest with everything. But 
in this conversation, we covered a lot of ground and I hope you guys enjoyed it. I think Greg seems like a real swell fella and there's probably more gravy in there that we could mine out in terms of the the Taoist esoteric side of things, alchemy and particularly, you know, if there's anybody out there that knows of somebody that has a grasp on star myths of ancient China, whether Taoist or Confucianism or anything of the sort, even Buddhism. I'd love to explore more of the astro theology of that part of the world because I'm finding little connections here and there between East and West with what little I know of Chinese mythology. And I think there's a lot more to be found. In particular, pretty interested in something that came up in hour two with Pangu. And I'm going to do some more research into that particular, what what would you call it? The primordial being, <laughs> uh, Pangu, and see how I can connect that into the weaves with our, our Loki series that we got going, which I'll say more about later. But if you guys have not been accessing hour two of the Interverse episodes, got to let you know they're very much where it's at. It's the best way to support this podcast, which is me personally, me and my wife, I would love to have your ears on the second hour of all these episodes. There's a huge archive of them. So you can get that on rockfin, R-O-K-F-I-N dot com slash interverse or patreon dot com slash interverse. Either of those options will get you access to this particular plus extension and a big archive of all the other ones. And in this second hour, we talked about we started out getting into the ancestors the relationship of the living to their ancestors and Taoism. I think there's a lot more meat on those bones that we could probably pull out, but it's fascinating nonetheless. And the previously mentioned Pangu, the primordial being, and other types of mythological syncretism between Taoism and other parts of the world. We also talked about the dynastic cycles as a representative of world ages and the emperor as a sacred center, like a pole star. Uh, got into Dantian, the furnace of the body, the lower energy center, its relation to mercury, cinnabar fields, internal alchemy. We also discussed more of the Wu Wei versus a more contrived type of action called Yo Wei. Good and the bad in each of those possibilities. Talked about the Messiah versus a healthy ego and enlightened selfhood particular interesting little thread came up about the eclipses how eclipses in the ancient chinese mythology represented a potential threatening of the mandate of heaven for the current ruler uh, or dynasty and how there was a saving of the sun ritual that corresponded with when people saw that sun get dark when it shouldn't with an eclipse and we also talked about uh, some really good advice regarding keeping hold of our unique spiritual epiphanies in even in difficult times, even when the sine wave of life dips into a trough rather than being up on a peak. So all that and more in the second hour. Hope you guys check it out. Really appreciate you being here either way. And I thought I'd leave us in this outro thinking about some linguistic potential syncretism regarding this phonetic of Shin. So Shin in... <laughs> 
uh, Chinese. It's usually a suffix attached to like a deity's name, but it represents as a phonetic the energy of our mental, creative and spiritual existence. Shin is responsible for all mental activities, thinking, cognition, thought processes, everything that has to do with logic and intelligence and memory and ingenuity. And in Japanese, Shin is true or heart. It also can mean new. In the Hebrew, Shin is the letter of fire and transformation. And the three teeth in this shape of this letter represent the three pillars of the tree of life. And then I thought, you know, what's very similar to this idea of Shin is San in Latin, which is the root of words like sank, as in like sanctity, if you will or sanctuary. San in Latin, S-A-N, has the meaning of health. And if you've been following along with our philological exposés that we do here, you know that the S sound, sh, is also, uh, S sound, s, is also the S-H sound of sh. And there's for sure some crossover between the S-H sound and the T and the T-H sound too. So we talked about Tien or Tian and, with, and Tinia and Ten. And there's a definite connection there with San and Shen, linguistically speaking. So I thought I'd leave that on the table. And another thing that didn't come up in this conversation that I found interesting in the book had to do with like 10, the conceptualization in Taoism of 10 different layers of our being. I think that there's for sure a weave there that might connect the Taoism system to the ancient Egypt system regarding our different layers of our being and our different bodies. So definitely a lot more to potentially dig into with Taoism. And I hope to sooner than later, you know, I'll be doing this a long time though. So we'll get there eventually. Hope you guys enjoyed the episode. Really appreciate you being here. Lots of ways to support the show besides just getting the plus extension. I'd love it if you did some or all of it. Tippecanoe Herbs is linked in the show notes. You can get a 10% discount on some really good medicine and use the interverse coupon code to do that. You can also get great supplements from Clive to Carl with my affiliate link. You can pick up the Spirit World audiobooks I've produced, and you'll be supporting both me and my buddy Dylan Sicosio. Great resource of knowledge for comprehending the syncretism that I'm always trying to point to in these conversations. And also, it's possible to get yourself a tuning or, you know, I don't advertise it as much. I also do divination sessions where we'll utilize the tarot and the I Ching and bring the East to meet the West and have a really powerful transmission of hopefully a lot of wisdom for where you're at in your life currently. I really enjoy those divination sessions, uh, but I haven't done a lot of them lately because I never remind people that they're a possibility. So whether tuning or divination, I'm here to take you as a client and we get to hang out and have a mystical experience together. It's a lot of fun and very potent. So with that, I'll leave you guys and I'll see you on the next one. Oh, wanted to also remind you, get into our Loki series. <laughs> I would, I'm loath to tell you to sign up to Disney Plus, but... The Loki TV show, even if you don't really know much about Marvel Comics, it's not necessary. It stands alone, and it's such a great launching point for us to talk about tons of the esoteric mystery school system and the keys to the symbolism of that universal system. The last episode of Loki recently came out, and I feel like 
it basically justified everything I've been saying about the character and about the symbolism in the show up to this point. So I'm definitely feeling like a lot of excitement to continue that series, even through 12 whole parts to talk about every episode. And I'd love to have you along for the ride. It's one of the most exciting things right now to me. Uh, I am a huge comic book nerd, so I can't help it, but it's fun. It's fun using allegory and stories as a vehicle for teaching and comprehending. So we're going to keep doing that. And I hope you join us. Me and Gabe have been crushing it. We're only three episodes deep. So definitely not a, not too much to catch up, up on. And, you know, those those streams are only about four hours each. <laughs> I think they'll be more concise as we go, but we'll see. Once I get into analyzing individual episodes, it just starts to spiral out of control because there's so much in there. But that's what makes it fun. And all right, I'll, I'll catch you guys on the next episode. Thanks for being here. Love you and be good. Bye bye. <laughs>